And welcome everybody to another Bangers and Classics podcast. Uh, that involves me, James Ruppert, and him, David Malloy. Hello, David. Hello, James. Uh, everything okay at your end? <laughs> oh, it's been the one oh. of those weeks. But yeah. saw some interesting cars on Monday, uh, two of which were linked to last week's podcast in a sort of roundabout way. And what and what were they? Well, the first one, which wasn't linked to the podcast, was a yeah. late model Austin Maxi in what I think was Harvest Gold. But then I saw something rather special. Um, I saw Big Bertha, not the Jerry Marshall car, but a unique, no one-off. It's the only one that exists, Jensen Interceptor. I think I've spoken about it before. It was a development car for the Jensen F-Type. Yeah. It looks like a standard Series 2 Interceptor, but it's six inches longer, a bit wider, and if you open the back of it and have a look, it's got hydropneumatic rear suspension. And it was sitting at an undisclosed location. I don't know who owns it. It used to be the chief engineer for Jensen. It's the only one in the world. And it was looking rather good, I have to say. And then, just to cap it off, um, this was all in the space of about an hour. I saw, uh, having dissed them last week, I saw a Metro. But it was one of the nicer ones. It was an MG Metro. Oh, good. I don't think it was a turbo. I think it was a normally aspirated. Have you spotted any interesting cars this week, James? I have, uh, David. It's been uh, oh. yeah, it's um, it's been a bonus week. Um, I saw uh, a Citroen Diane van um, in rural spec, which meant the Acadienne, you mean? Uh, whatever, um, and <laughs> uh, and it looked and it looked rough, and uh, so yeah, it, it looked as though it had driven up from somewhere deep, you know, the, in deepest south of France, off some farm, mm. and uh, I, I presume some terrible uh you know yuppies were in it or something and uh, uh but it was quite a nice thing to spot because i know how much you like them that was a that was a spot for you really david oh, I thank you very much yeah i didn't i didn't i didn't get a picture of it um and then there was there was a a definite crowd around an xk120 jaguar xk120 and right. um yeah I, I i couldn't fight my way through the throng to talk to the chap who was uh, driving it but it was in immaculate condition. And I did follow it down the road for a bit. And what that made me think was, uh, it looks so good. Uh, I think it's probably one of those very nice replicas. Because uh, oh. also the gentleman looked like he could he could have built it. Uh, he, right. did, he did look as though he was handy with a spanner. He didn't look as though he, he, he just bought the car and that was it. Uh, right. But it was in silver. It was utterly immaculate so i i did think uh who, who, who are the people there's a there's a couple of really good companies isn't that who make sort of replicas or kits um which are i mean it didn't look um fiberglass at all it did look as though it was metal uh but i know that there was a couple of, uh, a couple of companies that i should have researched obviously before i went on here um who 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 offer offer kits or you know most m- mostly built cars that you can finish off but uh, it did right. look um absolutely marvelous in the blazing sunshine at the time so, so yeah so this chap uh the one who may have built the car yeah uh, did, was he wearing a boiler suit and did he have a spanner in his back pocket was that the Abs- clue yeah i think that was absolutely and uh, oh. also the fact it, it it did seem to burble down the road quite uh close um quite quite nicely rather yeah. it's just that um all xk 120s that were original um i once did a photo shoot with uh, a classic car magazine many years ago and the xk 120 i mean basically it was held together with balsa wood it was it was utterly i mean if you looked at it in the pictures it looked fine but it really was a ropey old thing and you just think well yeah you really should take that to bits and, re- and rebuild it so this mm. one seems so good it must have been rebuilt or a replica or something like that but i don't know 
it was good it was good to see though it looked very nice on the road all right jolly good jolly good yeah i mean i mean guys wearing boiler suits with um <coughs> spanners or monkey wrenches in the back pocket they are a dying breed and that's a very very sad thing in my opinion it is. I go everywhere in my uh, boiler suit. Uh, I, 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 I do quite honestly look like Fred Dibner because Fred Dibner used to go everywhere in a boiler suit, but he was doing a proper job. He was uh, taking down chimneys and uh, and, and, and taking his uh, steam uh, uh, steam steam roller out, wasn't he? Um, yeah. But uh, uh, I find I find it a very comfortable way to travel. Um, and I, it, you are right, it makes me look as though I know what I'm doing when clearly I don't. Well, I mean, in fairness, if Fred Dibner didn't actually star in a ZZ Top video on Like Your Good Self, so I mean, well, there you go. yeah, uh, that's one you've got over Fred straight away. Yeah. <laughs> well, um, mind yeah. you, I reckon he'd have had a go, to be honest. I would have, I would have thought he would have done, wouldn't he? Uh, oh, yeah. Old Fred. Yeah. Yeah, old Fred. Yeah, we like, to, we like old Fred. We do. He's one of, he's one of our heroes, isn't he, really? He's a genuine British eccentric, a, a character. Um, and, yeah, the world's a, a poorer place for his passing, obviously. Yeah. Um, now, we're talking, you mentioned yuppies, and that leads me to a controversial series of ads. Some people hate them, some people like them, and I thought maybe we'd give it, you know, we'd find out what Bangers and Classics thought. And that is a series of commercials from the 1980s featuring the Renault 25 and the yuppies in it. The yuppies had names. Uh, they were David and Joanne. And a surname we find out is Parker. Remember those ads, James? Uh, very much so. Absolutely. They're, yeah, they're they're, they're hard, hardwired um, into my uh, brain. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular reason for that? Um, no, not really. But she did have quite a sexy voice. That woman. Uh, you know, um, mm. I can't remember the phrases now, but there were phrases u- used in that, and it was um, quite exciting at the time. And uh, yeah, being it, a bit hasty. Yeah, that's it. Uh, yeah, that, yeah, that, yeah that's I can't. I, I can't I've had that said to me so, so, so many times. But they, they, there you go. Um, <laughs> I'm not going to ask for a context. I really, I'm not going to go there. Uh, but yeah, I, as you've often commented, David, is that um, it was from the golden era of adverts when they made some sort of sense, or you look forward to them and you didn't mind seeing them 32 times because they were so good. And uh, yeah, yeah it, it had a story. It might have been a you know a fairly daft story in a way, but it was you know aspirational, and um, it didn't make me want to go and buy a, uh, a Renault Twenty Five. Um, but oh. um, although I I did work with somebody who had a Renault Twenty Five, um, so I have driven one. But um, yeah, it was um, it, it was good stuff. Was that a Twenty Five Turbo though? That's what they were selling. Uh, no, I don't in, think in all the ads, it was a Twenty Five V Six Turbo. Uh, no. I mean, there were, there were three adverts over the years. The first one, yeah. uh, David decides to set up his own business, and that features the Phase 1 version of the car, which yeah. happens to be my favourite. Though his plummy voice, or his attempt at a plummy voice, confused me. He said, it's time to go to loan, but it came out as, it's time to go to lamb. Uh, I can't do the sort of plummy accent. Uh, but if you watch the advert, you'll hopefully uh, see or rather hear what I mean by that to... It took me a little while to figure out what he was actually saying. Anyway, two years later, they feature uh, a revised Renault 25 V6 Turbo, which I don't think is as nice. Joanne, this time, has got a job, and she gets a company car. And, of course, it's got to be a 25 V6 Turbo. Uh, No catchphrases in that one, I'm afraid, I don't think. Mm. And then the third one, which was a short advert, they give you the impression they're splitting up and they're going to see someone that can't be undone now. And it turns out they're setting up in business. 
he somehow has wangled his way back into a 25 V6 turbo, and she's quite keen to have it as the company car for herself. So there we go. The car was great. Uh, the 25 V6 turbo, I'd say the early ones are my favorites, but a great car. Um, just something about them I really like. A couple I would describe as smug gits. Uh, yeah. She was very attractive. I mean, let's not kid ourselves on there. Um, and the ads, well... I would describe them as a sort of Nescafe gold blending four wheels, basically. Very well shot, got the message across. Uh, probably alienated a few people along the way, though, but um, it showed the car off, which I suppose was the object of the exercise. So I would say, uh, yeah, I'd probably say on balance, uh, um, I don't hate them. I probably rate the ads. What do you reckon? No, I do. And as you said, I mean, in many ways, they are a reflection of the time. Uh, it was a time when we were go getting and. Uh, uh, sharply dressed people, um, whereas now car ads are fairly woke, and uh, I suppose that uh, sort of defines what's going on right right yeah. now. In that things are pretty average, really. Whereas yeah. uh, back then, everybody wanted to go further, go higher, and uh, I did good stuff. <laughs> well, you did well. There you no. go, David. I was, you know, I, was a, I was a scruffy git back then as well. Well, that's a shame. But the you know, for the rest of us, David, we were we we were we were forging our way in business, and uh, yeah. ah. I was just yeah. I was just a mere teenager when the first one came out, so oh, right. uh, um, so I, I couldn't go anywhere. Uh, you know, couldn't even make it yeah. to university half the time. But that's because no, well, of there you go. Reasonable. I just don't know what was stopping you, David. I mean, you know, you, you oh. th- those adverts should have filled you with ambition to go out there and uh, find your own Joanne. Nah, not really. That's not. As, I couldn't go with the flow, mate. You, you probably have gathered that by now. Um, I can't do that. I'm just not wired that way. That's just how it is. I like it that way anyway. Um, But there we go. Anyway, we'll take a quick break there. You're listening to the Bangers and Classics podcast presented by the very dapper and debonair James Ruffert and the somewhat tousled David Malloy. Uh, It's time for this week's Banger or Classic and we've selected uh, a car that's sure to polarise the the debate and if James has remembered this time what it is, he's going to tell us. Um, is it the Porsche 924? Yay, it's a Porsche 924. Good job you told me, wasn't it? (laughs) For the benefit Uh, of listeners, this is our second attempt at recording it. Uh, James pretended to forget it the first time. He hadn't really, but he was just doing it for comedy. Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, the software played up, so we've we've lost that bit of dialogue, um, which happens quite a lot in this show, let's be honest. Anyway. 924, James, is it a banger or is it a classic? We're all waiting for your take on it. The world awaits. Well, the strange thing is, um, I took an awful lot in part exchange in the 1980s where people, um, yeah, were moving out of uh, a 924. And, uh, yeah, I mean, you've got all the cliches with it. You know, it had a van engine. It wasn't a real Porsche. It was it was really an Audi and all that. So, you know, you can trawl through all of that. But, actually, I rather like them. And uh, I think if you see one, you should go and buy one because they're uh, quite reliable little things. And uh, all the ones I've had over the years, um, I've really enjoyed. So for me, I, I I think it's a genuine classic. And I, I think boo-hoo to all those people who say it's not a real one. Um, yeah, so so for me, just from experience and the... Uh, uh, the nice checkered uh, uh, seats that you sit on. Um, I always thought it was uh, a good little car. So, yeah. Mm. I, d- I don't get the dislike for it among some Porsche fans. Uh, mm. After all, you had the 914. 
which yeah. was effectively the same recipe, really. It was yeah. a, a link-up between Volkswagen Audi and Porsche. And that's all the 924 was. And if you actually know your history, and you do, James, um, the reason the 924 came along was because Porsche were having a bit of a hard time. Um, mm. There was the energy crisis, if you remember, after you know, from 1973 into, well, well into 74, possibly even into 75. And makers of high-performance cars were taking a hit. Because he used a lot of fuel and people weren't buying them. And Porsche you know, was going through a tough time. What was already underway in the 924 before the crisis, but it became really important after it. And it sold very, very well. And again, you look at it, it's, it's a nice streamlined shape. It's got pop-up lights, so that's a win straight away. Yeah. And some of the versions of it are quite superb. Um, 924 Turbo. If you've never driven a 924 Turbo, my advice, people, is if you get a chance, take it. So a really nice, very well-balanced car to drive. It's not outrageously fast by modern standards, but that's not that important. It's just a nice car to drive. Better than that, though, is a 924 Carrera GT. That's from 1980. It came along. There were 75 made in right-hand drive. I've, one of them actually resides quite close to me somewhere. I've seen it kicking about. And, yeah, it's a fantastic-looking thing. 207 or so horsepower and tap. Not a great deal of weight. So it, it goes very, very well indeed. Um, so you find one of those and you can afford it and you know, snap it up. Same with the turbo. Absolutely. Then you've got a 924S, which is uh, basically, it's a cheaper alternative to a 944. It's obviously got a Porsche engine. I would say if you can afford it, go for a 944. It's simply, it's probably a better car. But uh, as I see it, there's no logical reason to dislike the 924 uh, just because it doesn't, in most forms anyway, have a Porsche engine. And because it wasn't built by a Porsche, it's simply a good car and as i've already said it's a very important car for porsche if they hadn't made it as a question mark would they still have been around going into the 80s so you know, be thankful for it um in that respect and simply endorse james's view it's a classic and that's the end of it let there be no more of this nonsense what do you reckon james uh absolutely yeah, yeah i mean absolutely. and if any anybody disagrees with us we'll we'll have a fight in an underground car park about it you know that's what i think <laughs> Oh, God, yeah. <laughs> you don't want to fight James in an underground car park. It's no, no fun, ladies and gentlemen. I've seen him in action. You know, he hides a lot of concealed weapons in that beard of his, let me tell you. Well, there you go. That's got to be said. <laughs> All right, okay. Moving on from the from one controversy to another controversy of sorts. And this concerns a chap called Paul McCartney. You might have heard of him. More a man of your era than mine, possibly, James. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, Beatles were... Uh, <laughs> pretty much uh, uh, around through my uh, younger years and uh, uh, when they broke up that was uh, quite a big news story at, at the time I remember and uh, yeah the Beatles yeah. yeah I don't mind them you know Beatles Beatles or Stones I don't know I like them all I'm more of a Stones guy to be honest yeah um, I think the Beatles wrote a handful of truly exceptional songs um, but that's about as far as it goes for me However, obviously, they were a massive act and, you know, they did a great deal to promote the cause of British music um, on the global stage, which is excellent. But during the time that they were going through, I suppose, the final days of existence, uh, a rumour began to circulate that Paul McCartney had actually died and been replaced by an imposter. And this gets traced back to uh, a caller to a Detroit radio station uh, back in 1969 who said to the DJ that he should play back um, certain parts 
Well, I think it was the White Album, and there were messages on it when you played it backwards that suggested that Paul McCartney was dead. And from this, um, a fairly um, substantial theory arose, and it was given a lot of airtime and a lot of column inches around about then. And it said that Paul was actually killed in a road traffic accident in November 1966, his death was covered up, and his replacement, uh, get this, who was Scottish, not a scouser. <laughs> so, I don't know how that would work with the accent. Um, but his replacement, apparently, according to the theory, won a lookalike contest, and he became the new Paul. Uh, have you heard any of this, James, before? I have. I mean, it's uh, fantastic conspiracy theory stuff, isn't it? Really? Mm. And uh, yeah, if you look into the coincidences, you can fall down a you know a, a hole of rabbit-sized proportions. Mm. And, uh, uh, and have fun fun with it. And, uh, you know, clearly it's nonsense, but uh, it's quite fun nonsense, really. Yeah. Well, one of the theories is that on the cover of the Abbey Road album, it's the four Beatles walking across the famous uh, zebra crossing. That's actually a funeral procession that Paul, who's got no shoes in his feet, no walking shoes, barefoot, yeah. is the corpse. And I think um, John Lennon was supposed to be the uh, minister or the priest of whatever. He's dressed in white. Uh, Ringo was dressed as supposedly the undertaker. George Harrison, who's casually dressed with a denim shirt and jeans, was the uh, the poor old grave digger. But in the photograph, and this relates to cars, obviously, yeah, there's a Volkswagen Beetle, and people say, ah, if you look at the last, the bottom line of the registration plate, it says two eight one F, and that means that Paul would have been twenty eight years of age if he had lived. It's a great idea, wonderful, wonderfully inventive. Except it's wrong. Paul was actually twenty seven, so that was cobblers. They couldn't agree, the theorists, on what car he was actually driving at the time he was supposedly killed. The way in which he was killed, again, there were so many different accounts of it. You know, you can take your pick. And it's all, it really is cobblers. It's, yeah. it's entertaining cobblers, I'm sure not from Paul McCartney and his family. It has to be said that Paul irritated the heck out of them. But again, maybe good for publicity. But this is the interesting bit. Um, there was a friend of John Lennon who was killed in a road traffic accident in London at the end of 1966. Uh, do you know that story, James? Yes, yeah, I am, I'm aware of that, but I, I wouldn't know the detail that you do, David. Okay, well, his name was Tara Brown. He was a 21-year-old heir to the Guinness Fortune, and he was driving his Lotus Elan uh, through the streets of South Kensington at reportedly speeds of over 100 miles an hour. He ran through a traffic light. Uh, he didn't see it, apparently and collided with a parked truck. Uh, he was killed. The girl who was in the car with him survived. And he was, as I say, he was a friend of John Lennon's. And Lennon reflected on the events in a Beatles song, uh, A Day in the Life. And I wonder, to some extent, if that's where the whole Paul is dead theory came from. You know, that was the origin of it. The fact that one of their friends was killed in a road traffic accident. But there is one interesting coincidence, James, that... Paul McCartney was said to have been killed in a road crash on the 9th of November 1966. Something possibly did die that day related to the Beatles, and that's the band itself. Because that is said to be the day in which John Lennon first met Yoko Ono. And of course, things didn't work out so well after that, for various reasons. And you know, maybe it was no one's fault, maybe it was just an inevitability. But certainly, um, it was a momentous day for the Beatles and for music in general. Absolutely. And also there's quite a lot of car, good car history with uh, the Beatles as well, isn't there? Mm. I mean, especially George Harrison, but they all uh, uh, had minis and they were Radford minis as well, weren't they? Uh, yeah. Which is, which is good. And uh, didn't uh, uh, John and Yoko uh, drive about in a in a maxi for a time? Uh, the, well, well that, that's a famous accident they had, isn't it? Yeah, it uh, is. Wasn't, isn't it? it wasn't for a time. It was a fairly short period. <laughs> yeah. uh, they were going up to visit John's relatives in the north of Scotland, and I think it was a mini they left in. 
They didn't get very far because there were, I think there were four, there were two adults and two kids plus a pile of luggage. And they got as far as the West Country, uh, sorry, the West Midlands. And John thought, this is rubbish. He went to visit some family and phoned the um, you know, Apple Records, said, this car doesn't fit. Can we get a bigger car? So you get an almost brand new Maxi because the, the Maxi was just out literally a few weeks, I think. Yeah. That suits them better. They go up to the Highlands. They've only been there a couple of days and they're driving down a road, you know, a single track road with passing places. John saw a car coming, which he think he thought it was closer than it was, uh, took evasive action, ended up in a ditch. And I think he and Yoko were hospitalised. He was certainly in hospital for a few days. And after that, he had the maxi shipped down to his home, which I think may have been in Surrey or somewhere like that. And it sat in the garden as an ornament for a while. Yeah, it's all good that, stuff, isn't it? Yeah, so the whole story is told in one of my books. You can guess which one it is. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, it's the ultimate classic car quiz but the, the story is in there uh, I should really play the klaxon for that but you know what the heck James teed it up so I might as well take yeah, the good. chance yeah. uh, so, you know, he shoots he probably misses by a mile but there we go but yeah uh, the Beatles also George Harrison's cars um, some of them were at auction I think last year or the year before and one of them was a Mercedes I think it was a 500 AMG um, a black one which appears in the video for the Beatles' um, 1995 single. Uh, I think it, was it Real Love? I think it was called. And they've got three Beatles, actually, three surviving Beatles getting out of the car uh, in that video very, very briefly, but that car was in it. So, you know, that in itself is a reason to buy it if it comes up. You know, it's at the backsides, what was then, the three surviving Beatles in it. So, yeah. that's, that's, you know, if, if you like music and you like cars, you want to buy a car of that type, that's the one to go for. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, of course, George Harrison was a, was a big car nut. He wrote a song uh, called Faster, which was effectively, I think it was dedicated to Ronnie Peterson. There's a good video for it. Um, the Jackie Stewart acting as a chauffeur. You can check it out on YouTube. It's actually a good song, and the video is quite good fun as well. Lots of good footage from back in the day, the golden days of Formula One, shall we say, before it all went corporatized, too corporatized and you know all the various things that are, that are now wrong with it, really. But there we go. And on that note, I think we should probably take another break. This is Bangers and Classics, the podcast that's groovier than Theresa May's dance moves. So welcome back. We're moving into the last segment of this week's podcast. And we want to talk about uh, interesting names of defunct cars or defunct car marks. Because uh, sometimes they're a lot more interesting than the ones that survived. And I'll kick you off with one I, I liked. It was the International Harvester Scout. It was a contemporary of Jeep, um, Jeep Cherokee more particularly, it looks like. And the whole name is redolent, I think, of the, the Great Plains of America, crossing it in one of those. No obstacle being too difficult. You know, it's a scout. It'll cross anything. It'll get you anywhere you want to go. And apparently they were very good cars, but they stopped making them in 1980, which uh, I think is quite sad. Uh, what would you like to say, James? What's, what's your favourites in that sense? Um, well, I would agree with you that, um, yeah, the Ancestral Harvester was quite a cool-looking um, uh, vehicle um, because mm. it was uh, quite handily sized as well. So it would actually do an off-road job um, and not break down like a Land Rover would. So, uh, yeah, that's that was good. Um, I, well, I mean, when it comes to names, I, you know, you can't beat things like the Gordon Giebel, um, oh. which I which I quite liked. And I believe there's only 99 made of those. And it, and it had an interesting little logo, the, uh, the Tortoise. Um, was that not a Welsh car, the Gordon Keeble? Uh, well, Gilburn, but uh, ah, Gilburn, Gilburn, but yeah, uh, yeah. Keeble, I think were were in uh, NW8. I think they were in North London somewhere. Right, I always get too confused between yeah. Gilburn and Gordon Keeble. 
But yeah, yeah, the Gordon Cable. You know, not to be confused with the Gordon Bennett, of course. No, absolutely uh, not. But if you want a bit of a name that's quite classy with a bit of irony attached, there was a car called The Missile, which was produced by René Bonnet, who had uh, been in business with a guy called Charles Deutsch's DB. They produced panhard-powered little sports cars, one of which was called the Le Mans. They split up. Bonnie went his own way and produced the world's first production mid-engine road car, which was the Jet. But he also produced uh, the Le Mans and the derivative of it, which was called the Missile. Yeah, this is where the irony steps in. Bonnie made some nice cars, but funding wasn't great. And one of his suppliers bought him out, basically took over and he got into trouble. That was a company called Matra, who formed their own car division. The irony is that the, the Missile was purchased by a company that really did make missiles. And in the, just to add salt to the wound, um, they stopped production of the missile car. So there you go. Uh, the other one I think was was quite cool uh, back in the day was the Dodge Stealth. Uh, there's a car for the nineties, James, isn't it? Yeah, it's just absolutely. a yeah, it's just a badge engineered Mitsubishi three thousand GT. But what a great name! You know, you'd want to have one of those, especially if you were a certain age in the nineties. You know, what do you drive? Oh, I drive a Stealth, man. You know. That would sound great down the disco when you're trying to impress young ladies. Um, yeah, I mean, there's an awful lot of dead uh, American marks now. I mean, it, it is stuff like the Studebaker. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah, which doesn't exist anymore. Uh, and it's hard to think of which which models do, really. Um, you, know, you know, they do seem to drop like flies. Um, mm. Well, Buick as well. Yeah, Buick, yeah. Yeah, um, uh, EMC, they went. Yeah, they did, didn't they? They were, they were bigger. I mean... We talked about them last week with the Gremlin. They also made yeah. the equally lamentable Pacer. They made some good cars too, let's not forget. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Um, Are you going to name one? Uh, yeah. Uh, AMC Hornet. AMC Matador. Oh, yeah, there's yeah, there's two right. good ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you thought you were going to catch me out there. Yeah, ah, I did. Absolutely. Nice try. Nice try. Yeah. Also, another, also, another name I liked was uh, the company still exists, but the, the car name isn't used. The Polara. It says Dodge. The Dodge Polara. Just something nice about the name Polara. It sounds like the Polestar, or if you're a child of the um, the Cold War, it sounds a bit like a like a ship mounted or a submarine mounted missile. But we're not going to get into that. Uh, another one I liked is a bit close to home was Maserati. James, uh, they produced some cracking sounding cars uh, named after winds. The Mistral was the very essence of windswept, sun dappled roads. That's what it sounded like to me. Yeah. Or the Camson or the Ghibli, they all sounded great, really exotic names. Uh, a bit better than the Biturbo, which was, you know, uh, not a bad car, but it was just a pretty boring name. Names are important, I think. Yeah, names are. I mean, yeah, it's a bit like, uh, yeah, the Chevrolet Corvair Monza. I mean, that's that's quite a nice, mm. quite, quite, you know, a three-pronged yeah. uh, three they... attack on uh, a car name there. Dodge Daytona, yeah, uh, which was a front-wheel drive car, believe it or not. Uh, you can see it in the film starring Tommy Lee Jones, uh, Black Moon Rising. John Carpenter wrote the script, I believe, at one. T- I think for that one. Oh yes, that's right. Yeah, that's a that's a really nineteen eighties uh, mm. thing, isn't it? Yeah, very nineteen eighties. Um, features a, features an interesting car called the Black Moon, which was based on a real car. The name of which escapes me. Again, it's in the book I mentioned. So if you buy that, you can read all about it there. Uh, <laughs> nothing like, that's two plugs in one, James. I'm going I was well today. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I'm. Um, I'm actually two nil down this week. Two nil. Two, two nil down the second half. Yeah. Come on, you can do better than that, sir. Yeah. Lots of interesting car names from yesteryear. Uh, if you've got any favourites of your own or any marks that existed that no longer exist, then why not send us an email? And tell us, and you know, we'll, 
would be interested to discuss those. The email address is james at bangersandclassics.com. That is an invitation for you. The last thing we were going to look at on this week's podcast was a clash of titans, you might say. It's two early turbocharged cars from Europe because the Americans did get there first, I think, with the Chrysler Jetfire, if memory serves me right. But uh, in Europe, we were a bit uh, slower to take advantage of that. But it came in 1973 with a car that was had a very short life but made a big impact. Uh, it was a BMW 2002 Turbo. You ever driven one of those, James? I haven't actually. No. Oh. Um, no, I know. I'm, I'm very disappointed in myself. But um, uh, uh, I've always liked them, um, you know, from the uh, reverse script backwards. Um, mm. I always thought they were uh, a very good car. And you already mentioned the uh, fuel crisis. Uh, once this uh, podcast and it deserves another mention because that uh, effectively killed off the 2002 turbo because it didn't do many miles to the gallon so it wasn't a very good vehicle to have so not very many were made um, but what a what a superb little uh, rocket it was yeah they made fuel in 2000 of them the first script james is talking about was was controversial on the front um airfoil front spoiler of the 2002 turbo it had the words 2002 turbo printed on it backwards so the only place you could actually read them properly was in the rearview mirror of a car in front of it. This was thought by some German journalists to be a little bit too aggressive. You know, we'd woke people even back then. And BMW thought, okay, we'll take it away. So they did without it. But very cleverly, what they did was they allowed it to be fitted as a dealer-fitted option. And you seldom see a 2002 Turbo without that backward script. Um, to my mind, it's a bit of harmless fun. It's where Kuhnle, Pop, and Kausch. But nonetheless, uh, it would have caused a stink. Controversial badging aside, the 2002 Turbo was a very interesting car. It had riveted on three large extensions, obviously the aforementioned front air dam, uh, a limited slip differential and a 2-litre turbocharged engine that pumped out 168 bhp. That's not a vast amount by today's standards, but um, given that the 2002 Turbo weighed about as much uh, as a packet of cards, then it was ample to give it very, very good performance indeed for the day. And the power delivery could be described as binary. You either had it or you didn't. That's the only thing that would catch you with early turbos, and they were all the same. Uh, if you put the foot down, you had to wait a little while for the turbo to spool up. And if you're going midway around the corner and it spooled up, especially in the 2002, the tail would get very wide. You learned to adapt your style. It wasn't really a problem once you got used to it. Uh, as cars, I think hugely desirable, and as James says, killed by the energy crisis, and fewer than 2,000 of them were made. But that's not the only car we're going to talk about. There was also, James, the Saab 99 Turbo. Uh, what about that? What do you make of that? Yeah, they're okay. Uh, I'm not as uh, enthused by them. I, uh, uh, I have uh, run um, Saabs with turbos in them, and I've been quite lucky. I know you've been terribly unlucky with yours. Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, I've always been a big Saab fan. But, uh, uh, I mean, it certainly looked good. Um, I think we're uh, uh, this is late, late 70s styling, and it uh, mm. does look part uh, it's got quite good um alloy wheels and uh, stuff and obviously it does need uh the rear spoiler and the front spoiler and all that to keep it on the road um but uh yeah i mean it was it was okay for what it for what it was I, I prefer the sort of standard uh 900 from that uh, era uh but that was a 99 so it was before it um but yeah, uh, yeah i yeah it's okay um but i'm not i'm not a as big a fan, you know, given, given the choice, I would go for the BMW, obviously, but uh, right. I do like Sobs. 
Yeah. Well, the thing about it, the 1990 Turbo, they came along pre-production form, I think, 1977. Um, same size of engine as the, uh, BM, uh, the BMW, two litres. Uh, the Garrett Air Research Turbo, 143 horsepower, so a bit less, and I think weighed a bit more than the Beamer. So it wasn't as fast. So it was quickish. Looks, I think, were understated. And revisionists, and there's plenty of them out there, say, oh, these, these the Saab came up with a great closed-loop system for the turbo. It didn't have lag, to which I say cobblers. It had loads of lag. Um, but there was a specific driving technique for driving these cars, and indeed all early turbo cars, um, to get the best out of it. Um, what it did do was it boosted Saab's image very considerably, uh, helped by winning the 1979 Swedish Rally, which was the round of the World Rally Championship. And I think it's fair to say it was the catalyst for the mainstream adoption of turbos. So it's a very important car in that sense. But I'm going to go with James here. It's a 2002 turbo for me. I think it's the sort of Jimi Hendrix of cars in a way. It arrived, it innovated, it made a lasting impression, and then checked out before its time. The Saab, it was a, certainly a bigger influence, on, I think, on uh, manufacturers in the BMW. But obviously, I say that BMW showed the way for Saab. Um, it comes down to this. The 2002 was the better car. So for that reason, in my mind, that's the one I would go for. Um, but you won't go too far wrong with either. I'm not going to diss the Saab because it was a good car. Uh, my maladies with Saabs are, are irrelevant to that particular <laughs> conversation. And I think that's all we've got time for this week. Unless there's anything you want to add, James? No. No um, plugs. Although, although I should have said Fasel Vega when we were talking about um, cars. Mm. Yeah. Well, yeah. Fasel Vega, yeah. The, yeah. Uh, that was the car in which Albert Camus, the famous writer, was killed. It, exactly, yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think we should get a plug in for James' books. Father's, well, it's after Father's Day now, but you don't, need to, look, you don't need to be a father to be any particular day. Buy one of James's books. They're all great. They really are. Um, you'll find them www.banganomics.com unless I'm sadly mistaken. Yeah, I think you'll find them there. But uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah, we both yeah we both write books. Uh, people. Yeah, uh, but buy yeah. books because uh, it keeps mm. people writing books yeah. and stuff. And but yeah. buy anybody's books because actually they're better than TV and stuff because that's boring. I think if you buy a good, well-researched book, it's a treasure, and <laughs> it really, it really is. And that doesn't matter who writes it. You know, a, a good book is something to treasure and something you'll always go back to. Um, so whereas I'll get rid of piles, I've got piles of things. I've got far too much stuff. That I'm going to have to trim down. That's another story. Um, I will, I will not be getting rid of my books uh, for a simple reason. You know, even if I don't look at them for five years, there's a day going to come when I go back to a particular book. It always happens, and I'll enjoy it just as much as the first time I read it, and sometimes more. And on that note, I think we'll call it a day for this week. Thank you very much for listening. Hope to see you again next time. Yeah, and it's a goodbye for me. I'm just going to go and uh, for a ride in the Renault 25 with Joanne. <laughs> you would too, wouldn't you? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Uh, so beaten to the punchline again. Beaten to the punch again. First of all, he nicks a Cadillac Fleetwood next week and now he's off for the women. <sighs> I don't know. I, I got sharpened my act up. Cheerio, folks. Yeah. Have a good one. Bye-bye.